I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. From Luminary, this is Karamo, a podcast. Hey, friends. Welcome to Karamo. I am your host, Karamo, and... We did it! Season three! Are you kidding me? We made it! You all have been growing and talking with me and sharing so much of your lives, learning so much from my guests over the past two seasons, and I just want to continue that with this season, giving you more to think about, giving you more to experience, and just expanding your minds to new perspectives. This season, I had to start off like I've done with other seasons with one of my co-stars from my show, Queer Eye. You know, I've talked to Anthony, I've talked to Tan now, and I've talked to Bobby, and there was only one left. You know, I'm not going to say save the best for last because I don't want the other guys to beat me up, but I do love my Jonathan Van Ness with all of my heart. Jonathan is the grooming expert on Queer Eye. He sparks so much happiness in each of us. And I can tell you from working with him personally, that's how it is on set. You just feel like he's going to bring light into the room. But what I love about him is that he also is able to get deep and give a perspective of saying, I've been through it, I know what it's like, and I want to grow through it. And that's what today's conversation is about. It's about talking to Jonathan about the things that he's gone through and how he has grown through them to create the life and the world that he has today. So without further ado, friends, let's get to talking and growing with Jonathan Van Ness. Hey, friends! Everyone, please give it up for one of the most loving, special human beings in this world, Jonathan Van Ness. Hey, JVN. Hi, Karamo. Thanks for having me. I miss you. You're one of the most inspiring people to me. You know, as I share my story, um, I always tell people, if you like my story, you should always check out Jonathan's story because you are somebody who has been vulnerable, laid it all out there, been so just forthright with everything that you've gone through, and it's inspired others. So I kind of want to talk about how you went from those traumatic moments or those challenging times to being the person we all see and know today. But, you know, you've talked a little bit about your childhood being difficult. Can you talk to a little bit about that experience? Sure. You know, I come from Quincy, Illinois, which if you've seen Queer Eye, we got to go there in the that episode in the fourth season. And it was a very difficult place to be. By the time I was like five, you know, I only wanted to be Christy Yamaguchi's best friend. And I only <laughs> wore tights. And I really wanted a perm. And I also wanted frosted tips. And I, you know, wore like off-the-shoulder Barney sweatshirt dresses. And... You know, that wasn't something that folks had seen before. And 
I'm someone who, you know, really couldn't temper that down too much. I mean, I do think that I kind of tried, you know, tried to fit in. I tried to pull it back, but it just never, you know, really stuck. Growing up, you know, really upfront about who I am made my life a lot more difficult. But I think the thing that really made my life more difficult is the fact that I was, you know, surviving sexual abuse for the majority of my time in Quincy. And it was a secret and it was something that was really devastating to me emotionally and spiritually and mentally. And it really shattered me into, you know, so many different pieces. And Part of where my creativity and my resourcefulness and my ability to be such a self-starter is because, you know, I had to create an imagination of a world that I could tolerate because mm-hmm. um, the world that I was born into wasn't one that I could really tolerate on so many different levels. So, yeah, I think that it kind of made me really strong. I think it made me also really – it gave me a lot of baggage that I am still to this day sorting through in so many different ways. So, But I do think that there were so many things that, you know, I hope part of why I I am so transparent about what I went through is because I want to help other, you know, young people to be able to talk about their experiences sooner so they don't have to go through, you know, what I did. What do you wish the adults in your life could have done differently at that time? Because I think sometimes people listen and we we talk about our experiences, but other adults that are in other young queer kids' lives or other children's lives, period, who may be seeing that this child needs some extra support or may be seeing that they might be um, experiencing some challenges. What do you wish those adults could have done differently? One thing I talk about in my book a lot is this idea that the ways in which so many folks, I think, you know, probably are raised now, but especially in, you know, our generation. And it's this, like, you know, do as I say, not as I do idea. And really shaping children to, at least in my experience, it was like, don't get caught. Like, you know, if you want to go out drinking, if you want to smoke, if you're going to, you know, have sex, anything, it's like you don't want your parents to find out. And ultimately, you know, when I was, Mm -hmm. you know, by the time I got to be 17 and 18, I was only someone who knew how how to not trigger my parents' nervous system to go outside of their window of tolerance. I had Mm. no concept of what my boundaries were. I didn't have any because they had been violated, you know, so many times. And I, you know, didn't understand my worth on so many levels. So, okay, I'm going to compare this to, like, me having a dog now. So stick with me because I'm not a parent of a human. (laughs) I'm with you. But when I adopted my dog, Pablo, he started, like, snipping, and he had some aggression and some resource guarding issues. And I had this this dog trainer that we were working with who really fucking pissed me off, and she didn't stay my dog trainer for long because she said after, like, the second time of working with her, she was like, you know, I know you wanted to get a dog so you could do photo shoots with it and take it to brunch and, you know, have a dog that you could take everywhere with you. And I was like, "What? let me stop you right there. I did not adopt a dog to get a dog that I, in my imagination, thought I needed to have. Like, I found this dog in a in a animal shelter. I fell in love with the dog. I want to be the home that this dog needs. Like I want to make it work for the dog. She like, was rude as hell, just to say she's rude as hell. And kind of, and with like and a side of homophobia. But I think that the, that the or just you know maybe not homophobic, but just like making way too many assumptions. I'm like you clearly don't know me very well. Yeah. Because to, to me, my you know my dog and my cats are the closest thing to kids I'm ever going to have. So it's like. I don't have expectations of who my animals are. I want to work with them. It's a relationship. I'm not going to, you know, adopt this dog thinking, like, this is who you're going to be. And I think similarly with children, you know, when, when, when people have kids, they have all these ideas of who this kid is going to be. 
and what, you know, what they want them to be. And I think so much of the human experience is loving kids where they are and, you know, loving people where they are. And another thing I talk about in my book is that I, you know, I really wanted to play dress up. And my dad was horrified by that. I think it could have been because of, you know, some internalized transphobia and homophobia, but it was made very clear that that wasn't something that I should be trying to do or wanting to do. You know, dress up, have Barbies, have a purse, wear dresses, wear tights. That was very quickly made made clear that this would bring shame on me or father, on, you know, your family, on you. But I was like, tough, honey, because I love these puppy shoulders and Golden Girls is my favorite <laughs> show. So, like, I, you know, I, I, I was like, I get where you're coming from, but I just cannot acquiesce. So I guess, you know, to answer the question of, like, what I wish, you know, parents would have done differently, I think it's having less expectations of who your kids are and what they're going to be, less fear about what it means. Is Am I afraid of what this is going to mean for the kid, or am I afraid of what this is going to mean for me as a reflection as their parent? Am I afraid of what it's going to mean to the kid, or am I afraid of what and how this is going to reflect upon me, because that's really what it is. It's the ego that stops adults and parents from doing what we know is best, which is loving them where they are. You've been very open and candid about your addiction um, and that period of your life. Can you talk about, you know, how the things you experienced as a child sort of led you into this place where you were, you know, using more than you should have been using or using at all, period? As my drag mother once told me, like, every girl has their habit. But, yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, sexual compulsivity and meth use were things that, you know, nearly killed me. I, you know, got I mean, HIV positive as a result of um, uh, some of those of, of those years from my life. I think that the ways that those interact with, you know, my childhood, and I think this is something that I've learned so much of in my recovery, and there's an amazing book called Remaking a Life by Celeste Watkins Hayes that talks about black women living with HIV. And one thing that she talks about is that there's this heartbreaking moment where that person would share with her that they had been sexually abused as a child. You know, we don't talk about sexual abuse. We don't nearly as much as we need to. There's so much stigma still attached to it. And you know, if you put 10 people through the same experience of sexual abuse that I went through, like there are not everyone's going to come out HIV positive. Not everyone's going to come out a sex addict. Not everyone's going to come out ever having done meth or, or, you know, or any drug necessarily. But if you put someone through that trauma, everyone's going to react to it differently. And in my case, and I know for a lot of other people that survive sexual abuse, it did, you know, come out through compulsivity with sex, compulsivity with drugs and really self-destructive behavior. You know, I'm certainly not someone who is sober. I was raised around 12-step. My stepdad, who I talk about so much in my book, um, you know, was 28 years sober when he died. And I grew up, like, coloring, coloring books, like, outside of AA meetings, like, waiting for him to, you know, come out. So I love program. I love therapy. I love 12-step. I do think that there's, like, a million ways to the top of that mountain as far as, like, you know, being healthy and and being in a relationship with yourself that's sustainable and healthy and, and good for you. But I do think that my drug use and my, you know, my sexual compulsivities were definitely related to the trauma that, you know, I survived. And I was just talking about this on a podcast. I interviewed Anna Malika Tubbs, who is the she's this incredible scholar. And her husband is Michael Tubbs, who is the mayor of Stockton. And she just wrote this incredible book. It's called The Three Mothers. And it tells the story of the women who raised Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X and James Baldwin. And it really studies um, or it looks at black motherhood in the 1900s and the early 1900s and how that affected the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Those three men were all really celebratory and like spoke of their moms a lot. But 
But for these three prolific women to never be profiled together to talk about the ways in which they were raised in the early, late 1800s and early 1900s in the United States, because you had Martin Luther King's family was very like faith without social justice isn't faith. So they were very like peace based. But then Malcolm X's family, you know, they had more of like, no, we will fucking defend ourselves. And there's just so many ways to come up to the mountain, like so many different ways you can approach an issue like racial justice. And they they all did it in their own way. As I was interviewing her and reading the book, it's like I wanted to categorize. I wanted to make this into like a bite that I could understand. But that's not what this is. It is so complex. The fact that all of these things can be true, that their existence was terrible from the government and they they overcame so much, but they were also so creative and, and could overcome so much and be so strong. There's just such a complexity and there's not this ability for things to be so simple. You know, it's their experience and their visibility that and, and the non-erasure of their visibility that gives other people hope, that gives those three, three men hope. And you do that so well for so many other people as well. You've always been an ally for African-Americans, especially in this moment of Black Lives Matter. As someone who is white and who does have some of the privileges of being white, even though you are part of the LGBTQIA queer community um, and you face your own discrimination, where did you find that sort of that that understanding that I needed to use whatever privilege I have and whatever platform I have to speak up for marginalized communities or African-American communities so that they know that I'm here for them. Because a lot of white people don't do that. We've seen it this entire 2020. We saw it. 2021 has already started. We've seen people who are not speaking up about it. What makes you say, I need to speak up about these matters? Because without the love of black women, I would be dead. Like, I wouldn't be who I am and having experienced a fraction of the discrimination of what I've seen black people face through, you know, my queerness and gender nonconformity my whole life, it pales in comparison into the um and the inequality that have befallen all black people. From day one, even before we started it, you have always celebrated black culture and have always made me as the only African American on our cast. And I, I know for true for Tan, you've always made us feel supported in everything you have said and done. There has never been a moment that we have shot Queer Eye where I didn't think that I could turn to you first and say, hey, do you get where I'm going or what I'm feeling? And you've always been that. And it does make sense that, you know, as you said, black women have saved your life. They've been supporting of you because it reads through everything you do of a genuine appreciation and love and curiosity of a, a different culture that you know that you want to support. So, you know, I, I, I truly just do love you for that. You are now happily married and in love. So congratulations on that. How does it feel to be a married woman now? It feels really different. It feels really exciting. You know, I got married and my mom had all this health stuff. And so after Christmas, she like shut herself in our house for two weeks. We shut ourselves in our house for two weeks she got tested, you know, by PCR, like, once at the beginning, once at the end, as did we. And then she drove herself like the astronaut who went to go kill, like, the 
like her lover's lover, like my like full like not literally like driving in diapers, but like <laughs> like she was like you know we were not getting the Rona in Oklahoma or Missouri on her way down. Like she was like I'm gonna pee in a bucket on the side of the road. I'm not going into gas stations. Like <laughs> I like I you know because like we're just like I have to see you. So um so she got to come for Christmas and she like she's needle pointing my husband a stocking because my mom's like always needle pointed us like these fucking cute stockings and <laughs> I was watching her needle point and I was like oh my god I want a needle point I want to learn how to do it and so then Mark thought it was fun and so then there was this like that was the first night she got there and she stayed for a week and then every other night we were just like needle pointing we like there was a needle point store in Austin that you can like call into and so we like got all this curbside Went and got all this needle pointing. And so then every night I was just like needle pointing between. Jonathan, you say this is different now that you're married, but this sounds like you before. You would be, even before you were married, you know, you were not like some wild, crazy um, individual that was always out. That was more me, if anything. (laughs) You have always been sort of this homebody that loves to be with people and to do creative activities like that. So this sounds like the same Jonathan when he was single. I, when I was growing up, I never thought I was going to get to be married. I grew up in the the age of Defensive Marriage Act and people just saying, you know, like, I love you. I just don't agree with your lifestyle. And marriage is between a man and a woman. And that was like a matter of law. And I, I really didn't think in my teens that I would be able to – I didn't think I'd see in, a, in the United States where I'd be able to be legally married. And that was such a beautiful thing that happened in 2015. And then it got taken away briefly in California before it got brought back. And then, you know, these fucking Supreme Court justices. So it's like – you know, my whole life, I, I didn't know if if I would have the right to be married, first of all. And then second of all, I'm like a super, a, you know, I have a strong feminine side. I'm non-binary. I have a lot of things that make me conventionally not what most gay men are trying to go after, which I think is really sad because there's so much toxic masculinity and expectation and, homo- and you know, internalized homophobia in our community anyway. But... Being in those moments with my husband and my mom and, like, making dinner in, like, a house that I just, like, can't believe it. Like, all of the parts that survived compulsivity and, you know, meth addiction and sexual abuse and HIV, I just am so excited. Like, every day is, like, <laughs> I can't believe—like, I, I always make that joke of, like, I feel like Uma Thurman at the end of Kill Bill. Like, I just can't believe I got what I wanted. And— you know, so that part feels amazing. And now I feel like I'm just really focusing on, like, how can I share this and, like, spread it around because I want other people to have this, too. Well, you have it because you've done the work and you've done the work and you consistently do the work on yourself. And when you you do the work, you get rewarded and you've always had love around you, but you now have gotten an even greater love that will be with you forever. And I'm very happy that you found somebody who who sees all the beautiful qualities that is Jonathan Van Ness. You know, um, you talked a bit about in that dating world and the LGBT community especially, you know, there is not a lot of information about our community members who identify as gender nonconforming or non-binary. What do we need to do to get to that place where we stop the stigma around gender and, um, you know, the things that we do that cause such foolishness in our community and in our country? I've had so many teachers and people who I look up to so much who have helped me to understand and shape, you know, who I am and and give me more information. I think one person who I consider such a teacher and a friend is Alok. And Alok taught me, you know, so much about the United States and our contemporary understanding of gender that I didn't know that's opened my eyes so much that has allowed me to go so much more into my roots into the sense that, 
you know, people that are gender nonconforming have been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I also would just, you know, say that my gender nonconformingness goes so far past the fact that I wear heels and I wear dresses. It has nothing to do with, of course, with what, of course. you know, my clothes are. Really what it is is that from my earliest memories, I felt not that of a man and not that of a woman. I felt something else. I mean, I did want to learn about geodes, and I wanted to go smash them in half and find them, but I wanted to do it in a fairy outfit. I, I just, I had extreme polar opposite expressions of gender in the way that we understand them in, you know, in children and in adults. You know, when I was in Boy Scouts when I was little, you know, I, like, made fun of hor- like horribly, like, you know, couldn't really stay in it because I was made fun of so horribly. But then when I was, like, a cheerleader and had a lot of, like, girlfriends, like, there was also a lot of, like, homophobia that I faced, you know, from women that would really kind of emas- – like, well, emasculate's not the right word, but would really just make fun of my queerness and make fun of my femininity as well. So I wasn't really welcomed by a lot of women. I wasn't really welcomed by a lot of men. For instance, one of my very best friends for, like, you know, from ages 13 to 16 was was this woman named Dion who I met through my friend Tamika, who was in my grade. And Tamika was one of my only friends. And she started taking me to her church, which, which was a Baptist church, where we met Dion. And so it was like, you know, I had like a 34-year-old best girlfriend and then like Tamika. And those were like my two friends for three years because like— I had two people in a city of, like, 40,000 that, like, wanted to hang out with me and, like, weren't ashamed to, like, go to the store together. So I didn't have people that wanted to be my friend. And so I think that there was just so much misunderstanding and, like, just, like, judgment because, you know, when you think about gender, I can't think of any other thing where there is 7 billion people and then two categories in which we're going to disseminate all of you between. And that is just so rigid. And, you know, if you look at historical texts through so many races and so many cultures, you see examples of, you know, gender nonconforming or transgender or, you know, the, the spectrum for gender is really, really wide. It's it's not a binary of two people. You know, for me and in, in, in my particular expression of gender identity, you know, my whole formative life, I thought that there was two choices, man, woman. A little later on, I learned about transgender and what that gender expression meant. And it wasn't until much later that I learned about gender nonconformity and non-binary people. That was the first time that I was like, oh, that's what I've been experiencing. That is what my experience most closely represents. It's been such a beautiful journey. It feels in many ways that, like, I've been able to return to myself and be a lot more comfortable in who I am, knowing that I actually do have a home and I do have a, a reflection that I can see myself in, in terms of gender, because gender is such a huge uh, area that we all have to navigate. So that's, I think that's what I would say about what I've learned about, you know, being a non-binary person. Can I just say two things? First of all, thank you for clarifying for anyone listening that gender and gender nonconformity or identifying as non-binary is more than just the clothes, because I believe sometimes people can get fixated on just the outer. But secondly, you said something which I needed to highlight because it's so beautiful and I know it can help so many people who may never have had the privilege of sitting down and speaking with someone or hanging with someone who is gender nonconforming or non-binary is when you said, now I have a home 
and I have a reflection in reference to your gender identity. The fact that you realize there have been and will always be gender nonconforming people throughout history. You now see yourself and understand yourself so much better. Isn't that what we all want? To know that we are not alone in our feelings and thoughts, that what we are experiencing, there have been others. You know, we all want to feel seen. We all want to feel understood. And, you know, that's what you do for many people, JVM. And I'm so thankful that I have the opportunity as we are on this journey we call Queer Eye to witness the impact you have on the world, help you spread love and learn from you as you learn from me. So I want to end this interview by asking, what's next for JVN? Because, you know, I've been trying to convince you to have your own late night talk show where you interview celebrities, politicians and thought leaders because your voice is so needed in that space. And I've also encouraged you to run for office. So I want you to tell us right now what's next for you. What is your dream? If we are looking into the future at JVN 10 years from now, what does that look like for you? Um, What a gorgeous question. I feel like what the next chapter of my life is, I mean, I obviously want to keep making TV and I want to keep entertaining. I love writing. I love doing comedy. As far as like political aspirations, like maybe in 30 years or 20 years, I think I lack the maturity to represent people who I deeply, deeply disagree with. I think that there's probably other people that maybe I could help nurture and help support who, you know, who can represent people that they don't agree with. I don't have that maturity yet in me, but I think that maybe like by the time I was like 45, maybe I will. I don't think I'm going to be running for office anytime right soon. Outside of my career, I really want to focus on expanding the HIV social safety net. I want to focus on, I think that's a place where, you know, in D.C. I could be more useful is is, um, really trying to advocate to expand and solidify access to the HIV social safety net, especially across state legislatures, because there's just not a lot of support for, for people that you know, we're living with HIV in terms of moving or accessing treatment wherever they live, especially if they're people who are, you know, living below the poverty line. So that's one thing that I really want to work on. Another thing I really want to work on is LGBTQ homelessness. Like, I love entertainment. I want to keep doing it. I love making TV. I want to keep writing. I love all of those things. But I really want to, like, spread out my impact. And, you know, my whole life when I was a little kid surviving what I was surviving, I always used to think, like, if I can never make it so that other people don't have to go through this. Like, that's really what I want to do. Um, and that still holds true today. So I think I've accomplished so much of what I want to accomplish. I want to keep doing that. But now it's really about figuring out how to give back. So, Jonathan, I love you. Thank you so much for being on here. Thank you for bringing a little joy in our lives today. And I can't wait to see you and give you a big hug. Thanks, Karamo. I love you. Thanks so much for having me. That was such an amazing conversation. I don't know about you, but I feel so good right now. I feel like I've learned so much. I feel just happy. I have a smile on my face because when I think about the fact that there are individuals like Jonathan Van Ness in the world, it makes me so happy to know that in moments of darkness, there's light that is out there in the form of beautiful human beings like JVN that is shining down on all of us. You know, we have learned so much today about... You know, what it really means to get over the things you've been through and not feeling like you have to 
put everything in a tiny little pretty bow, but that you can truly spend some time on all the things that you're dealing with, all the things that you're experiencing, and that you can find support and that you can grow through them with persistence, patience, and understanding. You know, I want to thank all of you for listening today. I think this was a great start to season three. What about you? You know, we're going to keep coming this season with more and more great interviews. As always, this podcast is not just about, you know, you listening to us. I want to hear from you as well. So, you know, in future episodes, you're going to have the opportunity to call in and I'm going to be able to guide and direct you. And you're going to be able to share your opinions that I'll be, you know, just sprinkling in the episodes because I feel that everyone's feelings are always welcomed on my show. So friends, as always, thank you so much for listening and growing with me. Make sure to hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at Karamo to let me know how you feel about today's episode. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Karamo, a podcast, is an entertainment show. For advice or support on any emotional or mental challenges, please contact a licensed professional in your town. This show was produced by Karamo, Nick Pinella of Workhouse Media, and assisted by Ellie Charles. All music composed by Ernie Wooden and the Big Woozy Band, and all episodes are edited by Nathan Moody. Thank you for listening and growing with us. Hey, friends! Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.